Well, we're back to uh, First and Second Kings and coming to the end of that sequence. One of the things that is interesting about the king's account is that it is particularly following the northern nation that is called Israel. We spent time first looking at the life of Elijah and He spends his time preaching to the northern nation, not to Judah, but to Israel. And then Elisha comes along and his focus is also to Israel and not to Judah, as they're both have done signs and they're proclaiming God's message, calling for Israel to return back to God. And they have failed to do that over and over and over again. And that puts us in these final chapters of of Second Kings. I'm just kind of calling what this small series we'll have with what few chapters we have left. The idea of cautionary tales because it's going to show why the, the people of Israel and the people of Judah are judged and why the nation falls. And God is teaching important truths about why they failed. And what God wanted of his people. And so that's what we'll be paying attention to is we're not going to see good behaviors. We're not going to see things to model, but rather cautionary tales as God reveals why these nations were doomed and why God brought judgment against those particular uh, nations. And so that's going to be our focus. We're going to be in, in 2 Kings chapter 14 to start with. We're going to be going all the way to chapter 17 because this is really a record of the fall of Israel. That's what it pays a primary attention to. We're going to notice that Judah is interspersed throughout, but even with that, it is a focal point to Israel itself and really to set the track that Judah is acting just like Israel in the sins that we are going to observe tonight. In Second Kings 14, you'll notice that it actually does begin with Amaziah in Judah, which is interesting because we just ended with the death of Elisha, who has been spending all of his time in Israel. And what I want you to see in regards to Amaziah is interesting that verse 3 begins by saying that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not like David. <laughs> And you'll notice that verse 4 then goes on to say that the high places weren't removed and the people were still sacrificing and making their offerings on the high places that actually the end of verse 3 equates him more to Joash. And remember, when we looked at Joash, we saw, well, he's rated good, kind of, and there's trouble with Joash. And yeah, he does good things, but there's a lot of negative things that surround him. And the same thing is here with Amaziah as well, is that he's put forward as someone who is doing right, but not exactly all that God wants, that you would see that Judah is full of idolatrous worship. The high places are not taken away. And it just says the people are sacrificing and worshiping these false gods. Amaziah gets it in his head because of verse 7 that he goes to war against the Edomites and wins. And so because of that, he thinks he's kind of big stuff at that point and decides he's going to go ahead and pick a fight with Israel. And you see that in verse 8 where he sends messengers to Jehoahash, who's the king in Israel, and says, we should meet face to face. Let's, let's, let, let's have a war. Let's have a battle. And you have to love 
the response of of Jehoahash when when Amaziah says we should we should have this this talk and, and have this battle. And so you see there in, in verse nine and Jehoahash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, where he says a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife and a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom. And your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? <laughs> oh, you're big stuff. You know, you're like a thistle standing in front of a cedar in Lebanon is what really what you are is his answer. Be happy with your win and don't come and pick a fight against us. We've talked about the power of Israel, the prosperity of Israel, a very uh, powerful nation in, in contrast to Judah. And that's what the King Jehoash is saying is, why would you want to fight with us? Why would you want to go to battle with us? Well, Amaziah doesn't listen and he goes to war. Now, before you look at how this all plays out, I have a question for you. We're told that Amaziah is a good king-ish and doesn't tear down the idols, but he's rated as a good king. However, we know from earlier uh, that Jehoahash in chapter 13 and verse 11, we're told, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So here is Jehoahash. He is an evil king. And here is Amaziah of Judah, a righteous king. Who do you think is going to win? You'd probably say, well, Amaziah is the good king, right? He's going to certainly win the day against this wicked king, Jehoahash, and, and all of that. But you're told in verse 11 that Amaziah goes up against uh, Jehoash, the king of Judah. And verse just 12 just simply says, and Judah was defeated by Israel and they just get whipped. They get whipped so bad that we're told in verse 13, Jehoahash captures Amaziah, the king of Judah, and they came all the way to Jerusalem, middle of verse 13, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, verse 14, seized the gold and the silver that and the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and also the hostages he took and returned to Samaria. They get obliterated by Israel. He comes all the way to Jerusalem, wrecks Jerusalem, takes everything that's in the palace and in the, the temple and takes prisoners back with them. In fact, it's a, an exile imagery that's being given there is Judah with the king being taken off with the silver and the gold taken off and even people in Judah being taken off as if taken into captivity, a foreshadowing of a, of a coming exile. The thing that I want you to see as this, this scene opens is that you have the righteous falling to the wicked. You know, you read that and you think, well, surely the wicked are going to lose here and it's going to be the more righteous that are going to prevail. But I want us to see a couple of points with this. And number one is important to see that just because you might be more righteous doesn't mean you're going to avoid judgment and wrath. And I think that is a very important message because we often operate in a wrong way of thinking where we look at life and we kind of go, well, we're more righteous than them. We're not as bad as them. So surely 
They're going to get their comeuppance first. They'll get wrath first. They'll get judgment first. Because we're not as bad as them, right? And I want us to see that that's not the way God operates. God doesn't do it in order of, okay, who's, who's more wicked than next, than next, than next. He doesn't operate that way. And that you see that even if you may say you are more righteous on some kind of comparison level, individuals are still going to be judged. And God loves to use more wicked nations to judge other nations. That is how he rolls. That's what he does is he always does that. And here's an image of it right here where Israel is certainly worse. And yet... Judah is going to lose this battle. Judah is going to deal with the consequences because of these sins. And so Judah's defeat here is as foretelling of what's going to happen in the future. And it's all being pictured here as Israel is able to do this. So just because you think you are not as bad is not going to mean your judgment's not coming. Flip it the other way, though. Just because you win doesn't mean God's not angry with you and isn't going to judge you. Because sometimes we'll look at it that way. Oh, well, they're, you know, they're prosperous. They're doing great. So God must be with them. God likes them. And certainly they're doing great. No, no, no. (laughs) Israel wins. And yet they're still going to be the ones to fall first instead of Judah. So God uses Israel and wrath is still due to Israel. But just because you are victorious as a nation does not mean you should sit back in vindication and go, well, we must be doing just fine since we're winning our battles and we're strong and we're knocking people out. God must really like us and we must be on top. No, that's wrong. And that's not how the way is the way God operates either. And I think that's important to see in this first picture is that it is easy for Amaziah to think, well, we'll certainly win. We've got God. We've got the temple. We're not as bad as you guys, right? And they get humiliated as they were completely wrong about how God was going to use these two nations. The rest of the scene of, of, of chapter 14 And really all the way to the end of chapter 16, if I could just kind of sum it all up, I would summarize it, summarize it like this. Nothing's getting better. (laughs) You have the king of Israel in chapter 14 and in verse 24, it says he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He does not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Chapter 15, verse 3, Azariah is the king of Judah. This sounds familiar with Amaziah, where it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like his father Amaziah, which is not that great, but okay. Verse four, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. In fact, we're even told in verse five without a reason why here, at least in this account, that the Lord even caused the king to be a leper, indicating uh, his his own failures in chapter 15. And you'll notice in in verse eight and nine that we move back to Israel. Zechariah is the king. Verse nine, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. As his fathers had done. When you get out to verse 18, we have Menahem who's reigning in Israel. And it says there in verse 18, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which with, with which he made Israel to sin. And then it's at that time that you see that 
that Assyria, it says in verse 19, now begins to come up against the land of Israel. The attacks are ultimately beginning. You notice in verse 24, next king of Israel, Pekahiah, he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Verse 28, Pekah, he becomes king of Israel. Guess what it's going to say next? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we notice Assyria attack again in verse 29. And with Assyria attacking and all of these sins, surely somebody's going to learn in all of these generations, right? Well, okay, down in Judah, here is Jotham. He reigns in Judah, verse 34. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And that then describes, you'll notice in verse 37, Assyria now invades Judah at that point. So I want us to see as this is just playing out is you can have these kings who are doing right in Judah, but nothing's getting any better. The people are still worshiping false gods. The idolatry is still going. Israel's full of bloodshed and wickedness. They're attacked by Assyria. We just read that Jotham is doing right, but the people still are not changing. Nobody's waking up. Nobody's seeing, hey, we need to consider our ways. Look at what God is doing to the northern nation of Israel. And so it finally all comes to a head in chapter 16 with Ahaz on the throne in Judah. And you're told there in verse in verse 2, it says, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. But please listen now to what it says next there in the middle of verse 3. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now you suddenly have a king of Judah who looks just like a king of Israel. Now he's not doing right, kind of. He's doing wrong, and it is horribly wrong. The image that is given to us in verse 3 is absolutely shocking to hear of the kings of Judah and causing their own son to be offered up as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel, that the nation of Judah looks just like Israel, and Israel looks just like the surrounding nations in the despicable and abomination kind of practices that are being done at that time. Things are so bad in the days of Ahaz that you have Israel and Syria making an alliance to go to war against Judah. So Ahaz's bright idea is he will make an alliance with Assyria to fight against Syria and Israel. And how are you going to pay for that? I don't have time to read it, but if you scan your eyes from verse 10 of chapter 16, really to the rest through the end of the chapter, everything in there is showing Ahaz absolutely dismantling the temple of God to sell it off as money to pay for Assyria to go to war to fight them. 
You'll even see it like in verse 17 where it says he cuts down the frames and the stands, removes the basin, takes down the sea and the bronze oxen that were under it. Every piece of the temple that has any kind of value whatsoever gets dismantled off of the temple. And that is how Ahaz is going to deal with the difficulties that are before him. What I want us to see is that Judah is tracking with the sins of Israel and is equally worthy of judgment. This is what is setting up for what we see in chapter 17, because as the title of the lesson is when a nation falls, chapter 17 now is the explanation. You had all of this lead up of these chapters of they're doing evil. They're doing evil. Look at their sins. Look at what is going on. You have in chapter 17, king of Israel. We, we return to looking to Israel again, Hosea. And in verse two, we're told that he did what was evil in the, in, in the sight of the Lord. Notice the words, though, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. That's really interesting. One king, not like all of the others. But at this point, it's too late. Verse 6 says, Assyria comes in in the ninth year of Hoshea's reign, captures Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Now, for us, perhaps we're not so jarred by that, but we should really consider when you hear that the people of God who are in the promised land are attacked by a foreign nation, successfully invade and take the people off the land and send them out was certainly a shocking judgment. And that's why the rest of the chapter has to explain why this happened. Verse 7, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and had feared other gods. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel that the kings of Israel had practiced. Verse nine, and the people did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. You notice in verse 11 and they very end of verse 11 and they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. In fact, even in verse 13, you'll notice the Lord says that he warned Israel and Judah sending prophets and seers telling them to stop and they wouldn't listen. I want you to see the picture that's being given to us at this point. Here's why the nation falls. The people sinned against the Lord. Yes, but look at what they are doing. They're worshiping other gods. They care about other gods rather than the true and living God. Notice the picture. They do just like the nations. They behaved like the rest of the world. That is their condemnation. And you have to love the image of verse 9. They sinned in secret. As if God couldn't figure that out. You know, you, you, you kept it hidden. And so, you know, you pulled one over and God didn't see. Notice it's pointed out. The sins that they thought they were even doing in secret. God saw those sins. The things that were not right. And then even verse 12 is, is stunning. 
where it says that they served, the, served idols and did these wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, of which the Lord had said, you shall not do this. And I want us just to think about this list of things that God says, here's why Israel and Judah had to be judged. Why the wrath of God had to come against them. This is why their demise was sealed. Because they feared other gods rather than God. They acted like the pagan nations. They did these sins in secret and directly violated God's law. The thing that I think is important to see here is here is a message where what the world says is right is not what God says is right. Here is God's condemnation. You did what everybody else said was acceptable. You directly violated what I said not to do. And you come into the places in the New Testament where you have passages like these. And you say, so which of these things is our nation not not secretly, but openly, publicly glorifying, proclaiming in direct violation of what God said not to do. It is a frightening thing to see God lay out lists like this and say, here's when I finally act. Here's when judgment must fall. And the point that needs to be taken is just because the world says to us over and over again, these things are great, these things are to be praised, these are things to be practiced, does not mean that we can adopt these practices. These are a reason why a nation falls. In fact, the rest of chapter 17 continues this, this very imagery. You'll notice in verse 14, after verse 13, God said, I warned them to turn from their evil ways. Look at verse 14 where it says, and the people would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. And I want you to really listen to what he says in verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he had gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning the Lord that the Lord had commanded that they should not do like them. This is an interesting statement where it says that the people followed what is false. The word idols is inserted, added because they followed false what, and our context is pretty much idolatry. This morning we talked about a word, vanity, emptiness, uselessness, that Hebrew word. This word for false is the same one. And you have God basically saying, you followed what was worthless and you became worthless. You followed what was empty and became empty. You followed what was false and became false. This is the image that's being given here. And it is a particularly interesting image because here is what God is saying. God is saying, 
You can no longer be a nation. You can no longer be a people when you are no longer serving my purpose. You have made yourself useless. You have made yourself empty. You are not accomplishing my will and my purpose. And that's ultimately what he's saying to Israel is you followed what was false and you became false. Now, here's what I think is particularly interesting to think about with that. Do you ever think about sin doing that to us? That what God is saying is that sin is what makes you empty and worthless for use and false. That's what Israel has done. You've made yourself essentially worthless for use. You can't be used by God anymore. Your sins have made you false in that way. And I'll illustrate it another way. What do you do with something that's become useless? What do you do with something that's become useless? Most normal people don't keep it around anymore. (laughs) We go, it doesn't serve its purpose anymore. What use do I have for this? And that's what God is saying is the nation must be judged. The nation must be removed by Assyria Because they're no longer able to serve God's purposes. And I want us to see that ultimately what's being said of Israel, we can apply to ourselves that we are devoting ourselves to our own destruction. When we do not devote ourselves to God's purpose. When we devote ourselves to God's purpose, we become useful to him. We become instruments that that belong to him and, and useful tools that can accomplish his will. But when we choose to pick the route of sin, we are making ourselves false and useless and empty in the process and worthy ultimately of judgment. And if these pictures were not bad enough, there is far more that's given to us in chapter 17. You'll notice... In verse 16, and they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images, two calves that they made, Asherah, and worshiped all the hosts of heaven. They served Baal and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Three more pictures are given. Abandon the command of God sold themselves to do evil, killed their children as offerings. More pictures of what a wicked nation does and more pictures of God saying, here is when judgment has to come, when a nation devotes itself to turning away from God, abandoning the things of God, selling themselves to do evil as God said not to do. Now, I want to show how all of these sins really actually all form together into one big problem. It's a simple sentence that is stated back in in verse 14 that I want you to see. Where it says there in verse 14, because here's this ultimate reason for their failure. It says they would not listen, but they were stubborn. But listen to it. 
as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord. Now, I thought their fathers believed in the Lord. You read that and say, they didn't believe in the Lord? No, the problem is a lack of faith. Just like their ancestors, they ultimately didn't trust God. That's why they're selling themselves to evil. That's why they're committing these sins. That's why they're giving themselves over to all of their desires and doing the things that God said not to do. It's because ultimately they don't believe in God. They say they believe in God. They pretend to believe in God. They wear the title. We're Israel. We're the people of God. But they don't do at all what God says. This becomes the ultimate picture of this section because I want you to notice something that you might find strange and yet it carries out this very same message. In verse 24, and really it takes it all the way to verse 33, it tells us about when Assyria took over the land of Israel. You might be really surprised by that. I was at least. I thought, okay, Israel's gone, period. Let's go focus on Judah now, right? No, God's not done. He wants to talk some more about What's happening here? Israel's removed off the land and we're told that the peoples that Assyria had conquered, verse 24 from Babylon, and notice all those names that I will not be able to say right. And they are all listed there and they're all moved into the land of Israel. So all these other peoples are there. All these Gentiles are all there. And they're having problems. There's all kinds of issues going on. And so finally, somebody says in verse 27 there, the king of Assyria says, we need to get one of the priests from the people of Israel to come back here and teach us the law of the God of the land. Since this has been a nightmare with us living in the land, let's get a priest from Israel who will teach us the ways of God so that we can live in this land. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to give Gentiles an opportunity to live in the land and be the people of God. I'm going to give them this chance. And so they begin to live in the land and they're taught about the ways of God. And you're going to hope it's going to go so much better, right? Verse 32. So they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also feared their own gods in the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. They feared the Lord, but they didn't really fear the Lord. They kind of just added this God in with all of their other gods that they're doing. Okay, we'll, we'll satisfy him, but we're going to keep worshiping all of our other gods. We're going to keep doing what we want to do. I want you to see that the Gentiles here are pictured as acting just like Israel. Because verse 34 flips back over to Israel and says, To this day they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. So you have the Gentiles who come to them. They're not doing what God says. They're fearing the Lord but worshiping their idols. And then you have Israel described in the same way. In fact, you'll notice that This description that's given from verse 35 all the way to verse 39, he tells them about, here's what God had told you not to do, not to fear the other gods or bow down to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You jump down to verse 40, though. However, 
They would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. They refused to be transformed as the people of God, but continued in their idolatrous practices. And he reaches it all the way back to Egypt. And he says, I brought you out of Egypt and told you to fear me and not worship those other gods. And he says, they never stopped. And then here's the chilling end. Final word for Israel, verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. This problem of, can I call it half faith? Fearing the Lord, but still serving their gods, gets transmitted as a legacy from generation to generation to generation. So that it says, even the children's children fear the Lord, but ultimately they're still doing what they want to do. Very quickly, I just want to sum up four things that we observed in the lesson to take home for us this this very evening. And I would say, number one, when you read a picture like this about why God brings a judgment against a nation... I would tell us that we need to pray for ours to turn back because it's doing the same thing that brought destruction on other nations. Clear as you read these pictures of what Israel did and you go, well, we've we've done that and then some. That we would pray earnestly to God that there would be opportunity for more patience and mercy from God so that the nation would turn back before a judgment that rightly falls on this nation ultimately comes. Number two, that means as we live in our culture, we have to fight against normalizing these sins in our thinking and in our behaviors. It's very easy to be conformed to the world when you're surrounded by this. The things that are done in secret are not in secret, but openly proclaimed. And we have to understand that though the world says these things are great, God says don't do it. And because of that, we have to fight against the normalizing that happens. We are so saturated with our media that makes everything A-OK and wonderful and great. And we have to recognize that we may become desensitized and thinking that these things are acceptable before God when they're not. Number three, therefore, don't be surprised for judgment to come from a more wicked nation than our own. That's the way God operates. That's what God does. He allowed Israel to, to invade in Judah He had Assyria take out Israel. He had Babylon take Judah. He always takes wicked nations and uses them for his own purpose. And then the final point, really the grand point of what these four chapters are about. We cannot serve God and think that we are going to serve ourselves. No one can serve two masters. You cannot worship God and worship other gods. 
I don't know that we catch the gravity of that sentence, that Jesus didn't say no one should worship two masters, nor did he say no one should try to worship two masters. He made it an absolute. It is not possible for you to serve two masters. When we follow our desires, when we follow the ways of the world, we are not serving Christ. It is not possible to serve both. I hope that you will see from the history of Israel how hard they tried to. That they feared and worshipped the Lord. While at the same time committing all of the acts that the world committed. And being just like them, God said, you have made yourself false as you've chased the false. You've made yourself worthless as you've chased the worthless. For us, I will end our lesson by thinking about what Joshua said. We have to choose today who we're going to serve. And I know that that's a challenge in the world and in the culture we live in. But we must choose to serve the Lord because judgment certainly comes on those who practice the things that Israel and Judah practiced. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is chilling to see how you judged your people, the people that you had rescued out of Egypt and placed into a promised land that you had given them. And you gave them so many promises of what you would do for them if they would simply listen and obey. And Lord, I pray that we would never take for granted our salvation and never think that just because perhaps we are doing better on some righteous level than others, that our sins are acceptable. God, forgive us for our own sins when we choose to go after our own gods and our own idols rather than serving you. Lord, I pray for this nation. You have blessed this nation. You have put this nation here. We are grateful for how you have provided for us, cared for us, and given us so much here. But Lord, we know as we read your word that this nation is far, far, far from anything you said in terms of what is right and good and holy and just. Lord, I pray that you would do something, do something in this nation that would cause people's hearts to turn back to you. And that you would do something in a way so that salvation could be reached for so many people who are walking in the dark and so many people who are lost. Lord, we know that we are worthy of judgment. And we know that you only keep nations around until those purposes are accomplished. So please, Lord, use us in a way that fulfills your purpose. But Lord, we pray that we would not be a nation that is false and useless to you, but that that there would be great repentance, a great turning of the heart back to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to be light. Right now, it is a struggle to shine as lights in the darkness, a time when there is so much that stands against you where there seems to be so much hatred against you and your laws. So God, give us courage. Help us to stand for what is right and true. Help us to not accept the things that are false. 
Help us to not conform to this world, but help us to continue to transform not only within ourselves, but help us to transform the lives of the people around us as we shine as lights and work to be the salt of the earth. Forgive us for our failures. Thank you for how you've blessed us. And we pray, Lord, that you would turn hearts back to you before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, sing the invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. I hope you'll hear the warning of what God gave to Israel of why they fell and to listen to those sins and think, okay, what can you do to change before it's too late? Would you turn away from your sins, repent of those things, follow Jesus with all of your heart and serve him as your one and only master? We'd love to help you do that. Just let us know how we can help you. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?